I'm a survivor. I'll keep on surviving. I'm Tom Panneries. You don't want to hear me sing anymore, so I'll stop. And this is Origin Story. Why are you like this? Like what? Like how you are! I don't know who you are or where you came from. Now on, you do as I can. Okay? Hello and welcome back to Origin Story, a podcast miniseries brought to you by Pop Culture Affidavit, which is part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. I'm Tom Panneries, and what I'm doing over the course of these 33 episodes is taking a look at the books that I bought from the summer of 1986 until the fall of 1987, which is the first time I collect comics. I'm back to covering some G.I. Joe comics for this episode in the next, and while there are comic books from two separate series, they're going to be two parts of the same storyline, so we get a little bit of continuity between episodes here in a way that we haven't since I started with the G.I. Joe and the Transformers series. I'd also like to note that we've reached the halfway point of this podcast series, and we're going to see a lot of multi-issue episodes coming this summer before finally wrapping up in November. But right now I'm going to dive into G.I. Joe Special Missions number 6, a comic that came out on April 28, 1987 with a cover price of $1. The cover is by Mike Zeck and it shows Outback hiding under a rock while soldiers look for him. And since this ties right into the storyline that started in G.I. Joe number 61, it really does a good job of getting us ready for the next part of that story. After all, Outback was the Joe who got away when all the others were captured. We were promised that we would find out what happened to him. So let's do that. The title of the story is Evasion, and our credits are as follows. Larry Hama, writer, Herb Trimpey, artist, Bob Sharon, colorist, Phil Felix, letterer, Bob Harris, editor, and Jim Shooter was your editor-in-chief. We open in the back alley in Krognitz, which is the capital of the nation of Barovia. This is where the Joes from issue number 61 of the main series had failed in their mission and were captured when, and where we last saw Outback. A Barovian military official is questioning Quick Kick, Stalker, and Snowjob. Snowjob is being hot-headed as his Stalker, and that gets Stalker smack across the face with the official's gun before he and the rest of his teammates are loaded into a truck to be hauled off to prison. That military official quickly realizes, however, that the Joes were not just being tough, but they were distracting him. He notices that he is standing near a manhole cover, and he orders his troops to open it up and head into the sewers. Outback is in those sewers and is doing his best to navigate the foreign city while his friends are trucked away and the military searches for him. However, instead of heading down into the sewers to chase him, they decide to simply pump gasoline and light it on fire to smoke him out. This scares a score of rats who all come after Outback, and after he successfully runs away, Outback has no choice but to head back to the street in order to avoid being burned alive in the sewer. He manages to do so and evades capture by hanging on to the underside of a passing street trolley. Later, at security police field headquarters, a soldier tells the man in charge, Colonel Ratnikov, that the American captive escaped and there is no sign of him. Ratnikov deduces that since the western border of the country is the only one that is bordered by any safe country, in other words, not behind the Iron Curtain, that has to be where he is headed, so he orders the borders closed. 
While Ratnikoff has his men search the Joe's hotel room and they discover that they were carrying money with sequential serial numbers, something that will make them easier to find, Outback steals clothes and buys a truck and then picks up a hitchhiker, which is ultimately a bad idea because the hitchhiker points a gun at him. But after they drive into the mountains a little, Outback stops short and causes the guy to smack into the windshield. Our hero finishes the job and then hops out, fleeing into the woods on the mountainside. Ratnikoff finds the guy at the farmer's market who sold Outback the truck. He discovers the sequentially numbered bills, and they all head north, eventually finding the wrecked pickup. They begin searching through the woods and find Outback face down in the snow. Or do they? No. He's standing in his boxers and holding a gun at all of them. He forces them into the helicopter they had taken out into the mountains to do their search. And while they're in the air, he shoots the gyroscope and bashes in the radio. Outback uses his compass to find the position where he wants to be, and he parachutes out of the helicopter, advising Ratnikoff and the rest of the crew to just turn around because they will be safe. Instead, they attempt to follow him, and they are shot out of the sky. He lands on the other side of the border and asks to speak to the American consul happy to be safe. Our story, then, will be continued in our next episode, where I'll be covering G.I. Joe, number 62. Now, I will say that I continue to be impressed with the writing in these G.I. Joe comics, and I'm not saying that in a way to sound like I'm looking down on them. It's just that one of the questions I have to ask myself as I go looking through all of these old comics based on toys is, does this hold up, or am I looking at them through that lens of nostalgia? And I know I've talked about this before. And G.I. Joe and Special Missions both hold up incredibly well. Larry Hama writes this like a solid episode of a good 1980s action drama, and Herb Trimpey is really at the top of his game here, which is something I have to confess I was honestly surprised by. I know there are a lot of people who really like his artwork, and I've, I've never hated it. I just never had much of an opinion on it, to be honest. But after seeing a fair number of licensed property or movie adaptation books that I always saw as having marginal art, Trippy's work on this book goes way beyond that. He gets done what Hama needs him to, because Hama puts together a chase story that involves this Barovian police and the military being one step behind Outback, and then catching up pretty quickly. It's a great character piece, too. G.I. Joe is about action, so it could very easily go on full Rambo, missing in action, like one of the movies that was like really, really big at the time, either on video or in the theaters. But Hama plays this realistic. Outback knows he has to get out. He has to get to safety because he's in hostile territory. And he's in hostile territory to the point where if the government can get the average farmer to sell him out, I mean, that's precisely what happens. And I like this detail. I like the detail of the guy who sells Outback the truck, also giving his, up his location, not because, oh, he's the dirty American or whatever, but because the guy is, like, afraid for his life, because he knows if he doesn't tell them what happened, they'll kill him. And it's very typical of a portrayal of a dictatorship, especially those Eastern Bloc dictatorships of the Cold War, but I don't care, because it really works here. It really works well. Hama also has these bad guys act smart instead of being bumbling idiots. There's always movies, TV shows like this, where there's this kind of keystone cops aspect, like the enemy soldiers and stuff, and here you don't have that. They're smart enough not to follow Atback in the sewers, because they know that's probably a losing proposition, so they smoke him out, and then they follow the money trail that Joe's had left. And while they fall for Atback's trick, that trick's pretty smart and works well to provide an end to the issue's plot, which has to wrap up within a few pages. 
And I know that I'm going to sound like a broken record here, but this is something that kind of got lost in the 2000s with all of the writing for the trade. G.I. Joe Special Missions are self-contained stories. This Now, this is also further an ongoing storyline, but it really is a self-contained story. You don't need to absolutely have read G.I. Joe number 61 to get what's going on in this comic. There's enough of a recap in the beginning. And if you only like this story, you don't have to buy G.I. Joe number 62. In fact, I looked ahead in the trade that I have. Outback doesn't make an appearance in the storyline until issue 67 of G.I. Joe. So pretty much the entire storyline here, you could just read the main comic if you're just interested in that, or you could just read this issue. So it's it's not absolutely, it's it's vital, but it's not vital, and it's a really, really good standalone piece. It takes a really good writer to do that and, and not write something that feels ephemeral and disposable as well. And like I already said, Hama treats this book and those characters less like a children's toy and cartoon and more like a solid primetime action show. I'm looking forward to the two or three other issues of Special Missions that I have, as well as the rest of the storyline in this main title. This has been a blast so far. I'll be back in a moment. Oh, adolescents this generation have no respect and are a far cry from my sweet Jane Eyre and her friend Helen Burns. Why, just this afternoon I was Stella. And and you know what, men too. Well, uh, uh, Stella. Men like the tragic Mr. Rochester and teachers, pa. They're all like the villainous Mr. Brocklehurst. Hey, Stella! Uh, yes, Thomas. As much as I enjoy um indulging your insanity, we have a promo to record. Oh dear, and what might that be? That is you and I telling everyone that we have a brand new podcast out there. It's called Required Reading with Tom and Stella. Once a month, we will take a look at a single work of literature, discuss it, analyze it, and determine if it's worth its place in the canon. Oh dear, that sounds delightful. Oh, I'm sure it will be. And you can find us on the Two True Freaks Network, which is at twotruefreaks.com. Oh, yes. Required reading with Tom and... Why is it Tom and Stella? Why can't it be Stella and Tom? It rolls off the tongue better? Okay. Well, that was easy. So, required reading with Tom and Stella at twotruefreaks.com. Thanks for contributing to the promo there. You did a great job. Oh, you are so welcome. So as some of you already know, and uh, now all of you know, <laughs> I would I just played the trailer for it. I have a podcast that co-hosts with Stella called Required Reading with Tom and Stella. And on that show, we take a look at one book and give it a really thorough look. And furthermore, you may or may not know that I teach high school English. So books are very often on my mind. I did take a look at what books were released in 1987, and I did a mental check of what books I had read or heard of when I was going back for something for this, this uh, segment here. Now, they were all adult books, and I was really not reading any of them in 1987. In fact, I'm pretty sure that I was reading, like, The Hardy Boys. And if I have the time, I may reread one of those books. But for this episode, I'm strapping my onion on my belt and looking at one particular author, and that's Stephen King. King, who is easily the most well-known author of the 1980s, 
had four books published in 1987. I should go back and see if these were before or after he kicked his most publicized substance abuse habit. And I want to say this is after. Anyway, the four books were The Tommyknockers, Misery, The Dark Tower, Book Two, which is The Drawing of the Three, and The Eyes of the Dragon. Now, I've not read The Tommyknockers or Misery. I have seen the film version of Misery, which I love. But I read the entire Dark Tower series, and I've also read The Eyes of the Dragon. As far as The Dark Tower is concerned, you know, this is... I'm going to table the discussion of any of that for a later time, because it took me almost as long to read the series as it took King to write it. But I do want to talk about The Eyes of the Dragon. This is the first Stephen King novel that I ever read. And it's an oddball novel for King, because it was not a horror novel. It's a fantasy. It's a medieval fantasy book. I want to say the reason he wrote it was because one of his kids had asked him to write something that wasn't scary or that they could read. And I remember that my dad read it and eventually encouraged me and my sister to read it. And I read it in seventh grade, so we were talking about 1989 or 1990. And I remember really, really enjoying it. The story, and I'm doing this from memory, by the way, is that a beloved king is murdered. His son, Peter, is framed for it. And the other prince, his brother, Thomas, actually knows the truth because he would sneak around in the secret passages of the castle and look in on his father's secret study chamber through the eyes of a dragon that's mounted to the wall. And uh, the person who actually committed the crime was the king's Rasputin-like advisor named Flag. Now, Flag, by the way, is directly connected to the Dark Tower and a number of other Stephen King novels, including The Stand. In fact, I believe it's the same character, just in a different guise. And I would come to realize that down the road. In fact, there is a reference to Flag and Thomas in, I believe it's the drawing of the three. And then I think in Wizard and Glass, he shows up again. Or there's more references to the Eyes of the Dragon in Wizard and Glass, which is the Dark Tower book four, which I believe is my, which is my favorite of the Dark Tower books. But The Eyes of the Dragon was this entry-level text of sorts to a much larger type of literature that I would get into as a teenager and in my 20s. I'd heard of The Hobbit. I'd heard of The Lord of the Rings, The Chronicles of Nardi, A Wrinkle in Time, like these books, but I'd never read them yet at this point in, in when I read this in 1989. I certainly hadn't read a number of them in 1987, maybe excerpts in English textbooks. And you think I would have read those classics because they would have been assigned to me or whatever. Somebody would have recommended them at the library. But I've always never really gone in a straight line with a lot of my popular culture, so I kind of double, would double back with some of them. I've still never read Narnia, and I've still never read A Wrinkle in Time. Uh, I may pick those up at some point when I finally have some free time to read other stuff. Who knows? Anyway, I remember that The Eyes of the Dragon enthralled me. For a while, it was my favorite book. On some level, I think it was because I felt a little more adult than I previously had, because I got to read the Stephen King book. I mean, Stephen King, I mean, like, that name, as well as Danielle Steele, was on the cover of so many of the books that my parents had put on their bookshelves. Plus, from what I remember... The Eyes of the Dragon is a tightly written novel that had me wanting to drop everything just so that I could find out what was going to happen. Years later, like I said, I, I saw in The Dark Tower the direct connection and the whole sort of realm of of Stephen King's books, how they tie into that Dark Tower series. And I've always loved that about, about his, his books and his connections. Funny enough, though, I do have a personal story associated with this book. 
One of those that I remember incredibly vividly, even though it's been 27 years or so at this point, and I should probably clear out what memory space oh, to, oh, I don't know, remember deadlines or something. Anyway, I'm convinced that the Eyes of the Dragon is why I was never in honors English in high school. So it's one reason. In the eighth grade, they pulled us into the cafeteria to take these tests for placement in honors classes for social studies in English, because we were already in honors math and honors science. And one of the part of the English exam was to write a letter from the point of view of one character from a book you've read. There was no specific reference to that book having been one of the ones we read for class. And I don't know if I was supposed to specify the name of the book, but I wrote the piece from the point of view of Peter, the one in the novel who was accused of killing his father. I mean, it was my favorite book at the time, and when I was writing it, I felt like I was totally in the zone, like, so much, so that I signed his name with a flourish. And I was one of the first people done with my essay. I was like, you know, I nailed this. Because it was, like, pick a book you read and write about it. And I read this in the seventh grade. Of course, here's the thing. I'm a dumbass. Still. But I was a dumbass then, and I didn't follow directions. So... Whatever genius prose was found in that letter was lost because I didn't do the assignment correctly and understand that one you've read over the last time in junior high school meant for English class. Or I didn't specify what novel I was doing or something to that extent. And then furthermore, I, I was a dumbass for never actually asking why I never got placed in honors English and if I could possibly get there. But then again, I had seen my parents rock the boat so many times that I had this mentality of never wanting to speak up for myself because I didn't want to rock the boat myself. And it's kind of a problem I still have sometimes. Like, I, you know, I, I, I probably should speak up and, like, you know, point out when, I don't know, I'm not being treated fairly or something should be mine. And... Because of all the years of, I'm going to go down and take care of this or whatever, I mean, you know, like, no, let me find my own thing or let me just deal with it and not dealing with it or whatever. I kind of have a, I'm very trigger shy. But anyway, so I toiled in regions level English, uh, which is kind of the average, you know, everybody else, general population, so to speak. And I wound up being one of those kids who allowed himself to get dragged down by those around him. Again, had I possibly asserted myself, gone to my guidance counselor, just found out what I needed to take the higher level English course, maybe in sophomore year as opposed to freshman year, I, I'm pretty sure I would have risen to the challenge. But then again, my first couple of years of high school were, were odd. They were rough in parts. They were just, it was just an odd thing of me being probably too mature and and such. And you know, I totally realized this attitude of like, you know, everyone else in here is dumber than I am and this isn't worth my time, which is kind of the attitude I had when I was in that English class. It makes me look like an arrogant prick. And I will say that, A, you know, like I said, I was a teenager and B, I totally love that I was an arrogant prick as a teenager. If you go back to Pop Culture Affidavit episode 50 from a couple of years ago, you'll hear me talk about how high school was this weird time because I vacillated between feeling like really sure of myself and being a total doormat. And as a teacher now, I can emphasize with the students who have this issue. And I try to encourage the ones who aren't entirely sure of themselves to take the challenge because in the long run, it does pan out and it does work out for the best. And it's not easy though. Our culture has this really messed up definition of success when you think about it. And we have this strange relationship with failure 
we seem to love to point out how people who have had great successes failed prior to getting to that great success. But at the same time, we're so quick to judge others who are not living life in a way that we perceive as right or normal. And we're very quick to tear down people and call them losers or their pursuits a waste of time because they didn't, I don't know, make a million dollars or something right off the bat. I mean, we're all guilty of this. I'm guilty of this. I think it's just everybody is. And I guess the best steps to take to correct it would be just to take small ones, you know, whether kids, new students, yourself, other people. Because unless the passionate pursuit is a life of crime or a venture that is going to destroy people's lives or livelihood, then what's the harm in trying or encouraging it, even if you're not going to make a lot of money? Furthermore, if you don't win in a matter of speaking, does that mean your effort was worthless? I've done NaNoWriMo, National Novel Writing Month, twice. I finished it twice. Neither of those novels has ever been published. In fact, I have a manuscript of a third novel that I completely abandoned midway through a revision because it just wasn't working. Does that make it worthless? A worthless pursuit? A failure? I don't know. So anyway, read The Eyes of the Dragon... I have no idea how to end this. But read the eyes of the dragon. And come back next time for G.I. Joe number 62. As always, please leave feedback on the Facebook page, on the blog. You can tweet at me or you can email me at popcultureaffidavit.gmail.com. I will be back in about a week or so. Until then, thanks for listening. Take care.